Good morning, my name is Brian Parks. I'm the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. I have a question for you. What makes gospel unity in a church possible? Does gospel unity mean simply that we're all in one place at one time? Just because we're all in this room right now together, does it mean that we're unified in the gospel? But, you know, we all live in families. We all know that our families live in the same place, but oftentimes we're not unified as families. So maybe that's not the answer. Does gospel unity mean that we agree on everything? Our favorite songs, our favorite teacher or preacher, that we agree maybe on cultural customs, maybe on politics? Does it even mean that we need to agree on every single theological point that the Bible teaches? Or should churches just try to gather together only people that are like one another, people that kind of look like one another, so that maybe it makes it easier for them to get along? Is that the way toward unity in the church? What is the secret of gospel unity? Well, the passage this morning answers that question for us. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the big idea in this most amazing of passages in the New Testament is this. If you want to write it down, I'm going to state it for you. The big idea is to live humbly together, imitating the humble Christ whom God has exalted. Live humbly together, imitating the humble Christ whom God has exalted. 
And as has been our pattern, as we work down through our passage, the passage is going to break up into three different sections. And if you want to write those down as well, it might help you. The first is verses 1 through 4, and that is live humbly together. Live humbly together. The second are verses 5 through 8. Imitate Christ's humble mindset. Imitate Christ, Christ's humble mindset. And the last three verses, 9 through 11, worship Christ exalted. Worship Christ exalted. Last week we read about Paul urging the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel. He wanted them to stand firm in one spirit. And with one mind, he wanted them to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what his instructions were in those verses. Paul wants them to live in gospel unity together, especially because they're being opposed. They're being attacked from the outside. Now in these next 11 verses, Paul continues to exhort the Philippians to live in gospel unity by telling them what it takes to live like that. What will it take to live in gospel unity on the inside? That's the first point of the sermon this morning. Gospel unity requires humility. Or as I said before, live humbly together. So in verse 1, Paul asks four questions, basically. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy. Now, Paul is asking these four questions, and he's really not waiting for a yes or no answer. He knows that the answer is yes for the Philippians. He's already told us that much. He experienced it with them, in fact. He started this church. He shared the gospel with them. He lived with them for a, a long period of time, teaching them the truths of the scriptures, getting to know them, loving them. In fact, he says in chapter 1 that they were all partakers of the gospel with him. So he knows the answer to those questions for the Philippians. But it seems that the Philippians must have experienced those things somewhat independent of one another. Or maybe they just experienced them in the past. And no longer are they experiencing them. Maybe now there's discord and division. Well, why does Paul want them to consider what they've experienced in Christ in the past? Well, it's because of what Paul urges them in the next verse. Look at verse 2. He says, essentially, if you've experienced these things, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he knows that they've experienced the benefits of a relationship with Jesus Christ, encouragement, comfort, love, the spirit, sympathy, affection. But they weren't experiencing those things in community with one another. Paul wants the joy of knowing that they're encouraging one another in the Lord, that they're offering comfort to each other, that they're living in the spirit together. That affection and sympathy are being demonstrated one to another. But Paul doesn't leave it there with the general command to share gospel unity. That would be correct and a good enough instruction for them, of course. But he goes on to explain to them what is absolutely essential for gospel unity. What's the secret ingredient? 
But he starts by telling the Philippians what is the enemy of gospel unity. Look at verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing is to be motivated in their midst by selfish ambition. Nothing is to be driven by their own conceit or a high regard for themselves. You see, all those motivations for actions or words, they come from pride. And pride is like an acid that dissolves gospel unity. So both selfish ambition and conceit are two ways of describing what motivated Adam and Eve, of course, in the Garden of Eden. The serpent had told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the fruit, you will be like God. Of course, the irony was that they were like God. <laughs> and so they believed the lie and they ate the fruit trying to seize likeness to God. Somehow apart from God's good plans and God's good ways. And immediately Adam and Eve were, what were they doing? They were blaming one another. They were in conflict with one another. So if pride and ambition and conceit is the acid that eats away at gospel unity, Paul then goes on to tell them what is the glue in the community that creates gospel unity. And that glue is humility. He says that at the end of verse 3. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And then in a second description of humility, in verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what humility does. It counts others more significant than yourself. And it looks to the interests of others in addition to your own interests. So if pride causes us to focus on self-advancement, humility leads us to self-denial and a concern for others rather than ourselves. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, describes humili humility like this. He says, to even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. And boy, do we know what that feels like, right? <laughs> Do not imagine that if you really meet a humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. The scriptures are clear throughout. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, the proud don't get grace because the proud don't think they need grace. They don't have their hands outstretched wanting to receive something from God. Church, one of the first steps toward growing in humility is to acknowledge our bent toward pride and our focus on ourselves. It's not just, of course, the outgoing and the talkative people who struggle to be humble. Quiet, reserved people can be just as prideful, just as focused on themselves. And oftentimes, because of cultural expectations, we might act on the outside like we're humble, 
But inside, our hearts are swelling with pride, even though we're complying. We're acting the way we know we should, but our hearts are raging. Here are two questions to help you evaluate humility in your life. Just two. Number one, are you more eager to talk about yourself in conversations, or do you ask questions and listen to others around you? It's a simple question. You know, one of the ways that we demonstrate humility is to ask good questions and to become good listeners. How can you and I know what fellow church members' real needs are or how we can love them best if we don't ask and listen? People don't wear those, their needs tattooed to their forehead, usually. Ask people about their relationships at work and pause and listen. Listen for something else that you can ask another question about. Ask what they miss about their home. Ask how couples met. Ask people what their kids are like. Ask all about their family. Ask if their family members are Christians. Ask how they became a Christian. Ask what they're reading in the Bible. Asking questions and listening carefully is one way that we can begin to take a greater interest in others as opposed to ourselves. The second question I want to ask you is, do you pray? Do you pray? I know probably all of you are here this morning in a church service and you desire to pray. You'd like to think that you're going to pray this week. But my question is not do you want to pray? My question is, do you pray? Oh, it's hard to pray sometimes. It's hard to pray because in prayer, we take our attention off of ourselves and we put it on God. It takes humility to pray. You know, I've been struck recently that in any, in any given week, other than on a Friday, I rarely would see maybe even 10% of the church members in Covenant Hope Church. And of course, if God blesses us and our church grows, that percentage might even decrease for me. One way that we can put one another's interests above our own is simply to pray for one another. You don't even have to be with them. Pray when you do see one another during the week. Don't miss an opportunity. If you go out to lunch with someone or you get a coffee with someone, pray for them, even if it's just a brief 15 to 30 second prayer. Ask what you can pray about. Just this week, we were over at Charles and Leachy Jensen's home. And before we left, they said, wait, before you go, how can we pray for you? What a blessing it was to have them pray for us. They were showing interest in us and what our needs were over and above their own. And you know, another simple way that we mention from time to time is to pray through the directory. It's such an easy way to show interest in others and to lift them up before the throne of God. It's one simple way. Oftentimes, we might not know what living humbly together might look like. Well, what do we do? Paul tells the Philippians and us where to look to know what true humility looks like. And guess what it looks like? It looks like Christ. Or even more accurately, he tells the Philippians, imitate Christ's humble mindset. That's point two. Verses 5 through 8. These verses are some of the most amazing verses in the New Testament. And I might say some of the most debated as well. 
Now, in the interest of time, I won't spend too much time on the details of the debate. If you'd like to know more about it, please come and talk to me afterwards. But we must explore these crucial verses. Paul tells the Philippians that in order to live humbly together, they are to think with the mind of Christ. He says in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the humble life together that Paul's urging the Philippians to is at its root possible because they are Christians. They are in Christ, as verse 1 says. And they have the mind of Christ, as he says. Now when Paul says the mind of Christ, what he means is not just that they, they think logical thoughts, just like Jesus. But they have a mindset, they have an attitude like Jesus. You know, back in the 1990s, there was a Christian fad of wearing bracelets, and they had four letters on them. You all know what the four letters were? Yeah, yeah. WWJD. That's right. It was crazy. I don't know how many millions of bracelets they sold. What would Jesus do? That's what it stood for. And, of course, I think it was well-intentioned. But, you know, when I read verse 5, I think to myself, someone should have made up bracelets that said WWJT. What would Jesus think? What would Jesus' mindset be? What would Jesus' attitude be? Because his actions flowed from his attitude and his mindset. So to imitate Christ is not necessarily to do the exact same things that Christ did. Of course, none of us are sent by God to go and die on a cross for the sins of the world. None of us are to do that. We're to take up our cross and live in a self-denying way, a self-sacrificial way, but we don't atone for anyone's sins in our life. You know, when a child is growing up and they're beginning to imitate their, their parents. They imitate their parents in, um, in, in merely their actions. So if a dad jumps up off the sofa to cheer his team on, you know, a little boy or a little girl that's right next to him will learn to jump up off the sofa and cheer, even if they don't have any idea what's going on. <laughs> They're imitating them. And that's a good thing in a way. But as our children grow older, we want them not just to imitate our actions. We don't want them to just be robots that do what we do. No, no, no. We, we want them to have our mindset. We want them to think according to the gospel and biblical truth. We want them to make wise decisions in the circumstances and the situation that God leads them into. That's the kind of imitation that Paul's urging for the Philippians and for us. Christ's mindset was what led to his actions. And we're called to take on his attitude. And Paul, in just a few short verses, describes what actions Christ's mindset led him to. And in those verses, Paul describes the mystery of the incarnation. God taking on human flesh. Incarnation. Look at verse 6. First, he tells us that Jesus was in the form of God. Other translations say, being in very nature God. So Paul is clear. Jesus was divine. He was God, and he is God. And theologians would put it like this. They would say that Jesus had a divine nature. 
But because of his mindset, his attitude, Paul tells us that he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be exploited. That's another word that could be used there. Or used to his own advantage. Some theologians have studied this passage and they've concluded that because it says Jesus emptied himself, and that literally is the word there, it means that he literally emptied himself of his divinity. He let it go. And he just became a man, a man only. But that would mean that Jesus wasn't fully God while he was here on earth. And the rest of scripture contradicts that. Rather, we read in the next phrase, and we see that Jesus didn't release his divinity. He added his humanity. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. You know, we believe that the scriptures teach that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. In other words, Jesus had two natures. Two natures. We have one, on the other hand. We have the nature of a human, of mankind. And when Jesus took on that additional nature, he took on a human form, his glory was hidden but not given up. Jesus needed sleep. He got hungry. He got cold or hot. He experienced emotions. He cried. He was angry. He experienced joy. I have to imagine that he laughed. He went to plenty of parties. Jesus is every bit of as much a human as you and I are. Actually, Jesus was more human than us. If you consider how sin has distorted and twisted us. He was the perfect human. So, you know, it's important to know how to speak with our Muslim friends, especially during the season of Ramadan when you might get into conversations with them. I wonder if you've ever had a conversation with a Muslim friend and they've said to you, we don't believe that Jesus is God. Because how could God die? How could God die? And maybe you were stumped by that. Well, I just want to tell you, these verses help us. They help us answer that question. The answer is to understand that Jesus died in his human form, in his human nature, but not in his divine nature. His two natures made it possible for the God-man to die. Now when we look back in verse, verse 8, we see that Christ's humility led him even further. Not just to take on the form of a servant or the form of a man. It says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, the very author of life, the source of life, humbled himself, becoming obedient to death. And not just any death. He endured the most shameful of deaths, a death on a Roman cross. Humility led Christ from the throne of heaven to hang on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. And this is what it took to pay for our sin. This is what it took to reclaim us as sons and daughters of the King. 
It's an understatement to say that this is profound. It's a deep mystery. And yet it's revealed to us in the scripture. How else would we know what God had done to rescue and redeem us? But through God's word. Brothers and sisters, have you meditated on what it took for God in Christ to humble himself in his way? This very Jesus has always been at the Father's side. He was there speaking the heavens and the earth into existence, flinging stars and planets into space, comets and black holes, shaping the formless earth, carving into it majestic mountains and bottomless oceans, filling it with creatures great and small, designed with care to display his glory like the rest of the universe. And all of it, of course, daily sustained by his power, his word. This all-powerful, almighty, all-glorious Jesus, who is served by all of creation, took on the form of a servant, humbled himself, bled, and breathed his last breath on a wooden cross. And we're preoccupied with our bank accounts, or how we look, what the next phone is that we're going to buy. Whether our team won or lost. So much so that it's difficult for us to consider others more significant than ourselves. So much so that it's hard for us to look around and see what other people's needs are. Brothers and sisters in Christ, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Imitate Christ's humble mindset. But God the Father didn't leave Christ there on the cross. He raised him from the dead by the power of the Spirit and made him higher than every other man or woman that has ever lived. And that's the third point. Worship Christ exalted. From that low point at the end of verse 8, Paul tells us that God honored Christ's humility and obedience. Verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, there's few places in Scripture where the language soars like it does in these verses, 9 through 11. And when we read this, actually, our thoughts should turn to the Old Testament because it's that language that Paul is echoing here. It's language from Isaiah 45, verses 22 through 25. Let me read it to you. And see if you hear the things that Paul is saying here in Philippians. Isaiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are the righteousness and strength. 
To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Paul is telling us that everyone will bow down and confess Jesus as Lord. Everyone. But don't think for a minute that this means that all people will be saved. No. On that day of judgment that draws near, there will be some who trusted in Christ in this life. Christians. People who heard the good news that though we're sinful and estranged from God, He sent His only Son to live and to die and to be raised to new life so that we could be redeemed from slavery and sin. Those people repented of their sin. They trusted in Christ and were reborn into the new life that Christ offers. And on that day, that day when Christ returns to judge, they will bend the knee and they will shout His name with joy and gladness. Christ is Lord. But just like Isaiah tells us, many will come and they will bow the knee and they will say His name through clenched teeth in shame and terror. You either bow the knee to Christ now with joy or you bend the knee to Christ then with shame and terror. But all will bend the knee to Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. If you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here this morning. You're welcome every week to come and join us. But I wonder if you've thought about which type of person you'll be on that day. You will bend the knee and confess Christ. That's what this scripture says. Will you bend and bow and confess him now? And experience the new life that he holds out to anyone who would repent of their sin and trust in him? The encouragement of Christ, the comfort from his love, the guidance of the spirit, the affection and the sympathy that he has for you. It's there for you to experience, to know him. Even today. Or will you wait and bow and confess on that day? Don't wait. When in our pride we sin, when we act from selfish ambition or conceit, we're reaching for glory for ourselves. We're trying to grab it. We're trying to grasp it. Exploit it. Use it to our advantage. The glory that only God can give. He's the glorious one. And when we do that, it results in condemnation and shame. But the Lord Jesus has shown us the way. In obedience, he humbled himself and he died for us. So God has exalted him and restored his glory. And all that he's done and is doing brings glory to the Father. Brothers and sisters, we worship the Lord Jesus, the Lord of everyone and the Lord of everything. He saved us from our sin through his humble death and his example is our pattern for life together. In the church, in Covenant Hope Church, we worship the exalted Christ when we live with the same mind and the same love, when we count others more significant than ourselves. When we look to the interests of others in addition to our own. If you've repented and you've trusted in Christ, you have access to the mind of Christ. 
the mindset and the attitude of Christ are yours in Christ. Let's live together with that mindset for the glory of God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you sent Jesus and that he was obedient to take on the form of a man, a servant even, and then to suffer and to die for us. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that you've raised him from the dead by the power of the Spirit, and he now sits in glory at your right hand, reigning and ruling over everything. You've given him all authority in heaven and earth. We live to bring him praise. Help us to do that in this church. In Christ's name, amen.